With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So I've got on the podcast David Bach, author of The Automatic Millionaire. And David, how many books altogether have you written? Uh, altogether, James, I've got 12 books out. 12 books out, and they've sold altogether about 7 million copies? Yeah, that's, there's, well, as you know how this is in the publishing world, there's 7 million in print. So 7 million in print, I think we're in... 18 languages now, and the last I heard, we're in about 50 countries. Um, the word, the message is really, it's spread amazingly, word of mouth, throughout the world. And your books, I would say the primary message is, your books are, are about, you know, this is very broad, but they're about basically helping people achieve financial freedom in their lives, reduce financial worry while they're on their way to achieving financial freedom, and then you give various techniques, tips, resources towards helping people achieve this financial freedom. Yeah, I think you just described that really well. I mean, you know, it's funny, I was on a plane the other day and someone said to me, had read a couple of my books, she'd read Smart Women Finish Rich and she'd read Smart Couples Finish Rich, and I asked, you know, I always loved meeting readers, and I asked a question. I said, you know, what was the biggest thing my book helped you do? And she said, your book helped free me. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, you know what, I felt trapped. I felt trapped in a job I didn't love. I felt trapped in a career I couldn't change. I felt trapped in the community I was living in because I didn't think we could afford to move. I felt trapped as a mom unable to help my kids go to a better school. She's like, everywhere I turned in my life, I felt trapped. And she's like, I picked up your book originally because I was worried I wasn't saving enough money for retirement. But she said, when I went through your book, because one of the things I teach in my books and my classes, I teach people how to do what I call values-based financial planning, which is where you look at your values first, and then you build your financial plan and your goals around your values. And she said, you know, when I looked at my values, I started realizing that my values, what was really most important to me in my heart, I wasn't living my values. And she said, once... I started going through your book and started fixing my finances. I started living my values. And she said, in a matter of years, I changed my entire direction of my life. And that's what I love helping people do. And I have a, I have a couple of questions about that because, and, and A, I want to get back to that woman in a second. But like, I, I feel very strongly that people should, you call it values, I call it themes. Instead of having specific goals like, I need $2 million or I need $5 million, people should really think about what the themes of their life are, what, what the experiences they want to have in life are, as opposed to what specific material goods. But like in Smart Couples Finish Rich, you know, you say, what do people want? And one woman says she wants Viagra. And, you know, of course, that's funny. But then you get down to the heart of what she really wants, which is romance in her life. But how do you personally extrapolate from what someone says to a theme or a value like that? So it's a really interesting question. Um, so I spent the first nine years of my career at Morgan Stanley. I was a financial advisor. 
And one thing that I learned very early on in my career is that once you, once the numbers worked, it, it, was, it wasn't really about the numbers, meaning that once somebody comes into your office and you run their financial plan and you figure out that the math works, right? You've got enough money to enjoy the next 40 years of your life. Here's what you can spend. Here's how it needs to be managed so you don't run out. Once the basics are covered, it really becomes about how do you live your greatest and best and most exciting life. And so I would break financial planning for my clients, and we do this now for all of our clients at Edelman. I would talk about clients' dreams. I'd say, you know, tell me something that you want to do. with You call it themes. I call it dreams. Tell me what you want to do this year, next year, 36 months from now that you're not doing that you think could take money. And let's build some of the financial plan around that. And, you know, I think I give an example in the book about, for instance, a, kit, a, lot, of, a lot of people talk about their kitchens. It's ironic, but I think everybody, when they retire, they build new kitchens. Maybe that's stopping now, but, you know, people build new kitchens and they never cook in them. But I would say to people, you know, tell me a dream that you've got. And some say, well, it's a kitchen. Well, great. What's the kitchen look like? And a lot of times people have had a 10-year dream that's gone unfulfilled so they can give you a very specific, crystallized picture of what it looks like. And then I'm like, well, great, let's just back out the numbers and figure out how we get you there. So I think financial planning really isn't about just the math of retirement. It's really about how you live your best life. And for a lot of people, by the way, that means a lot of people, when they realize it, they can retire sooner or they can just simply change the transition of their life. You know, when you wrote your book, Choose Yourself First, which I, I love and I recommend it to so many people, it's an amazing book, and I think what you, ta- what you did, I always talk about pay yourself first, and to me, choose yourself first is really the same concept. You're, you're putting yourself first, and knowing that, look, you're going to work, you're going to trade your time for money. That money, you should keep it. You should be conscious of how you keep it so that you can have your best life. I think what's, what's unfortunate is how, and you talk about this too in your blogs, people become unconscious. You know, society is set up to get us to spend every penny that we make, constantly be in debt, believe we need to have more stuff, and in doing that, we become trapped. And I want to help people get untrapped. It's a really good point because how many marketing messages a day would you say the average person sees? You know, whether they're driving past billboards or commercials on TV or ads in a paper, how many marketing messages do you think we see a day encouraging us to spend our money? Well, you know, the numbers are constantly changing, right? But it's in the thousands. Um, you probably know exactly what it is. Do you know what it is, by the way? What, what, what I, I would right say now? it's closer to like 50,000. <laughs> yeah, because I think, I think digital media has changed that, right? And we're also becoming numb to it. So, if the, you know, you open up Facebook, you might see 100 digital ads in 10 minutes and not even realize you're seeing it. But, uh, you, you know, I know in the years past, the number was like 2,700, and I would agree with you. I bet you it's in the tens of thousands of messages a day. When you live in a city like we do in Manhattan, I mean, I'm looking out my window right now, and there's 10 cabs in front of my window, and I can see every one of them's got a, a billboard on top of the cab, right? So those are all messages. Those are all marketing messages. So there, there's all these messages encouraging us to spend our money because perhaps it's not our natural inclination to spend money, so they need to kind of come up with this, you know, this madman approach to take us from our, our money. But, you know, then you point out quite wisely in Smart Couples Finish Rich that the primary cause for divorce is arguments about money. You know, what do we do about this? Well, you know, this is, what's, this is why this is such a deep passion of mine, because when you, when you see couples that are on the verge of divorce and it's been because they're fighting about money, what happens when you fight about money is that you put tension in the marriage, you put stress in the marriage, it creates anxiety, it creates sometimes a lack of trust, 
all those things break down the fiber of a marriage. And over a year to two years to three years, that's where marriages start to pull apart. And then often in the last ditch hope to keep the marriage, people go to couples counseling. And what I tell people is, look, most cases, you might, if, if you're fighting about money, you don't need couples counseling. What you need is a financial planner, which what you actually need is a financial plan. Because we often fall in love with our financial opposite. You know, I always say people are born one of two ways, James. They're either born to spend money or they're born to save. We almost always fall in love with our financial opposite. When I say this from stage, people crack up. Uh, it's just true. But the good news is that you can be a financial opposite and you can work as a team. And so what I teach couples is, you know, what are the steps to work as a team? How do you bring two couples that are apart and get them to work as a team? And it really does go back to starting with the values. I did a whole show with Oprah where we took couples on the verge of divorce, had them focus on their values first, talk about their values, and plan around their values, and it changes everything. What most couples focus on is the spending, and that's the number one cause of friction. And, and when you say spending, does do they split the difference? Like one person wants to spend a lot and the other person wants to spend nothing, or do they both spend a lot? You know, it ends up being tit for tat. And there's just a lot of hiding that goes on. So it's funny. The Wall Street Journal did a whole feature story on couples and money and fighting about a month ago. It was April. And in, they, they surveyed 4,500 couples. And they asked these couples, how often do you talk about the small purchases? 96% of couples said they talk about small purchases. Then they said, well, what's a small purchase? And when they asked women what a small purchase was, it was like $362. I'm doing this from memory. So if I'm off by a few dollars, give me a break on this. But... For women, it was a small purchase was three hundred and sixty two, and for men, it was over twelve hundred dollars. So, so like for instance, and you always refer to the latte factor, like a latte and and a cigarette and an, uh, a gourmet sandwich for lunch, or and then organic food for dinner. These were not considered small purchases; they were just they were not thought of at all. Right, and what that really means is that really, and I wouldn't expect you to call your wife and say, "I'm going to have a sandwich right now," or "I'm going to go to Starbucks and have a coffee." What it, but what it really says is that couples really aren't talking about money. And so, you know, a big thing for couples, in most relationships, one person pays the bill. I refer to them as the family CFO. They often are also the same person who now is managing the money. And it's starting to be more and more cases the wife, too. It used to be the man. Now it's often the wife. What happens, though, is that the other person becomes uninvolved and disengaged. And so it's really critical that couples sit down once a month and go through the expenses and how the investments are doing together. And for some couples, they're like, look, I'm never going to do this once a month. Okay, great. Then at a bare minimum, twice a year, every six months, you should, if you're not working with a financial advisor, I think most couples should, but if you're not working with a financial advisor, you should be sitting down as a couple, looking at your net worth statement, looking at your investments, looking at your expenses, and being brutally honest with each other and saying, did we make progress in the last six months or did we fall behind or are we just staying the same? Because again, you're trading your time for money in most cases. And you know, we're only here for a limited amount of time. So I want people to go get the most possible out of their life. And the fastest way to do that as a couple is work on your finances as a team. You talk often about retirement, but I was talking to... Um Dan Butner the other day, and he wrote this book called The Blue Zones or The Blue Zone Solution about all these areas of the world where people live to be over 100. And he said that the two most dangerous years in a person's life are the year they're born and the year they retire. Those are the two years they are most likely to die. 
So here's what's so interesting about him. I, I haven't read this guy's book. I need to read it. But I, I think I read an article that he did. It's absolutely true, and I can tell you this from a financial advisor's perspective. I saw it very early in my career. I watched multiple men die within six months of retiring. And what I changed in my business is I started sitting down with my clients that were coming to me a year or two years before retirement, and the first thing I would tell them in my seminars and in my office is the first thing you need to go do is get a physical. And they'd say, well, what, what, what do you mean a physical? I'm like, what's the point of retiring and having all this money if you can't go enjoy it? And I tell them, you, your best chance of dying is in the first 18 months of retiring. So go get the physical now. Go get the trainer now. Change the diet now. Because what so many men do is they work, 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 and they tell themselves, I'll finally take care of myself when I retire. And what really happens is they, they, they retire and they've basically they've just shot their body and they haven't taken care of themselves, and then it's too late. So women don't have that same problem, by the way. This is a man's issue, although this is starting to change for women because there's so many of them are now career women. It's interesting because I sort of see not just retirement, but if you have like a period of prolonged stress, you might not get sick during that stressful period, but once that period is over, it's almost like your body gives itself permission to get sick at that point. Like the dangerous points are not when you're stressed, but like right after you're stressed. Well, it's like we all, right, we've all lived through this where you go on, you, you work, 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 and you go on vacation, you go on vacation, and the second day you're sick, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody who's worked really hard, especially entrepreneurs, knows that experience. And you're right. And so I, I think, you know, what, what you're doing and what I'm trying to do with people is, is change the conversation, turn the, you know, change the dial, get people to rebalance, refocus on what matters most to them. I think the best thing that happened out of the recession, which, you know, I know you talked about what you went through. The recession was a time for people to reboot their lives, and, and a lot of people did reboot their lives. A lot of people really got back to the basics and really started spending more time with their families, you know, were able to change careers or had to change careers or were able to start over. I think as we head into this six-and-a-half year of a bull market again, we're getting away from all these basics that changed in the recession. You know, everything's booming again. It's kind of like the dot-com days again. And, you know, materialism is coming. It's amazing how everything just, we never learn, right? It's all coming back. Materialism's coming back. And everybody's talking about real estate prices and stock market. And, you know, so much of this is, is fleeting. So I think it's really important to focus on your life and your family and who you love and your impact in the world and just know, look, money is just a tool to go live your best life. And if you can get the money part handled, then you can go focus on what matters the most to you. Well, well, it's funny. Recently, my my wife and I did something which which is probably a little bit of extreme, and I discussed it a little bit in my most recent book, Choose Yourself: Guide to Wealth. But we decided to throw out all of our belongings and just focus on experiences. So we travel a little bit more. We're fortunate because we write, but we try to do what we do for a living from different locations and also from our home where we just kept the minimum needed to do our work, but we threw out or, or gave away books, clothes, kitchen appliances, sheets, towels, you know, anything that we didn't absolutely need, we just got rid of so that there's almost no material possessions in our house. Well, and I bet you feel lighter, right? There's a, I mean, I would imagine that the two of you have, you instantly feel less pressure and lighter when you did that. Yeah, absolutely. So, for instance, no clutter in the house ever, which makes me feel less stressed. 
I'm looking at I'm looking at the book sitting next to my bed right here. The life changing magic of tidying up. Right. I don't know if you've interviewed Marie yet. But. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I'm trying to interview her actually. Like that's where we got the idea from was her book. You know, this book's got over 2 million copies. Probably now it's over 5 million copies. Everybody's house is cluttered with her book. But I think that there's this huge movement to unclutter. You talk about this a little bit. Like, you, you basically say you break money into, into three categories. Be, do, and have. And I feel like you kind of touch upon this topic with that. I, I do. And Smart Couples Finish Rich. So I'm, I'm on a tour right now. And I just got back from Irvine. We had almost 600 people in Irvine. We're going to Chicago tomorrow. I've got another 600 people. And I'm going to Boston and Detroit. By the way, I don't know when this is airing. but um, We'll, we'll, we'll have it air before, before the tour finishes. So, you know, people can go to smartcouplesalive.com. It's smartcouplesalive.com. Put in uh, the code word TOUR, and they can come to the seminar for free. It's two hours. It's the new, and I'm doing a free book signing, too. Everybody gets a book. And hopefully it's not sold out by the time this airs. If it is, we'll be doing a webinar after the tour so that those who aren't in the cities can also uh, attend and, and learn how to do this. But in the beginning of the seminar, I talk about be and do and have. And I basically say, you know, again, society is set up to focus on having, which forces us to do things in life we don't want to do. And the last thing we ever get to focus on is who we want to be. And when you look at midlife crises, quote-unquote, it's because somebody wakes up in their 50s, and now it's really in their 40s, and, and says, you know what, I got all this stuff, and I'm not happy. This is not the life I thought I was going to have. I'm not who I want to be in life. And, and it's just sad. So but what how, I, does somebody, how does somebody get to know what they want to be? In their, if they've never thought this way before, they've, they've gone from high school to college to graduate school to lawyer to accumulation to buying things to house to family, uh, how do they know what they want to be if it's completely different from that? I'll go back. It goes back to values, right? If I sit down with you and say, James, you know, let's talk about your values for 30 minutes. Tell me what's really most important to you. Not what do you want to buy, not what do you want to do, but tell me what your core values are. And, we, you know, and you go through this process of a value circle. So in Smart Couples Finish Rich, there's a value circle exercise, and you write out your five values. And I give you all these values that you can choose from, but you spend some time thinking through, these are my most important values. If you're a couple, you both write your values out. And then you talk about, as a couple, what are our values that we want to stand by as a couple? That's a lot about who you want to be. Now, that's a proactive way to do it. If you want to know the reactive way, which is what happens to so many people, I, was, I just did an interview with Ariana Huffington, and Ariana's got an amazing book out right now, her book Thrive. You know, Ariana talks about how her wake-up call was, you know, cracking her face on a desk, ending up unconscious in a pool of blood, and then having to go to the emergency room. And the quote that sticks with me, you know, what she said, which I think is so true, she's like, you know, uh, an emergency room is an amazing time to figure out what's working and not working in your life, right? Because you have like an instant soul conversation. And that's what she talked about. And I said, you know, that's what happens to so many people. Someone dies that they love and they start thinking about their life. Somebody finds out that they're sick and they end up in the hospital and they find out that they have to have, that they've got cancer and they instantly start thinking about who they want to be. They don't think about, I want to have more stuff. They think about, am I using my life to its best full, have I used my life to its best purpose? So, you know, people lose a job. They have a 20-year career, and overnight they lose their job. It goes back to, wow, am I living my best life? So we have these moments in time where we're, where we're forced reactively off, often to think about who we want to be. All I'm trying to do is get people to proactively think about it, which, again, you know, before we started this podcast, I told you that I'm a fan of yours because I think 
I think you're doing the same thing. You're talking about it in different ways, but you're basically saying to people, young people, middle-aged people, older people, you know, wake up and figure out what you want to, how you want to live your life, because this is your life. Go live it now. And I the mean, thing is, me- there's never a moment where it's too late. Like, I think I spent, you know, my time up to the age of 40 in more of the have category rather than in more of the be category. And it, it doesn't matter, like, what better late than never is, is the saying, because life is short. In Smart Couples Finish Rich, in my seminar, I give, in the very beginning of the seminar, I give an example of a couple. And I had this couple, they were been married 35 years. Um, he had worked over 40 years. He was 62. And when they came into my office, they were in complete disagreement about what retirement would look like. And when we got them to focus on their values, the value that they came up with, well, one of the five values, the one that was most important to them was marriage. And they talked about how they wanted their marriage to grow. And that, you know, really over time, they had stopped growing as a couple together. And they felt like they were bored. Um, and they wanted to grow again. And so we said, well, what does that mean to you? And they started listing all these things that they thought they could do together as a couple to grow. Well, so they said, we'd like to get, we want to get involved in a charity together. Um, they wanted to set up a foundation. They wanted to, tra- you know, travel is an obvious one. But when they, when they talked about travel, they said, we want to do the kind of travel where we grow, right? So... They wanted to take cooking classes in Italy, as an example. They wanted to do a charity work in Mongolia. I mean, very specific, cool things. So once we identified, they wanted to, they wanted to work with the grandchildren. You know, they wanted to take, and then when I looked at the grandchildren, stuff like, that's going to be fun, but we also want to grow as we, as we get the chance to really be grandparents. Now we want to grow as, as grandparents, which is growing as a couple together. We want to do this together with kids. Once they got it really specific, then we did the financial plan around that. And I just go back to, it's not, you know, numbers are super important. You have to run your numbers. But a good financial planner does holistic-based planning. They talk to you about your dreams and your goals, and they help you create your own vision board, if you will. You know, I don't mean, you don't have to paste it up on a wall, but creating a vision of what your life looks like today and where you want your life to go. Um, super powerful. And I think most people can start this process candidly by reading Smart Couples Finish Rich. The book, you can get the book anywhere. Uh, you can probably even get it in the library for free. But it's a great guide to start the process. People can go to my website, finishrich.com. Lots of great resources there. If someone's looking for a financial planner, as I said, I'm vice chairman of Edelman Financial Services. We can help you there. You can get a free portfolio review, sit down with an advisor, get your situation looked at. Well, um, let me ask you this, David, because a lot of these couples, they've been married 40 years. They've had a job for 40 years. You know, they started early. And I know you've also written about, you know, starting late, finishing rich, which is more and more common now, particularly since the recession where everybody essentially got either fired or demoted or so much stress happened in the economic system. What's some advice for somebody who's like listening to this and thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm 45 or I'm 50 uh, I have $25,000 in savings. What should I do? So you're right. That's really what led to two books, Start Late, Finish Rich, and Start Over, Finish Rich. Um, I wrote Start Over, Finish Rich in 2010 because the number one thing I was hearing from people on the street, literally being stopped in Tribeca in 2009, where a woman saying to me, you know, I did everything right. All the things you told me to do, David, I funded my 401k plan. 
I bought a house, and now everything's dropped in half, and I just, I'm giving up, and I've lost my job, and I'm giving up hope. Did you feel bad at that point? Because, like, everyone who had bought a house was basically underwater. You know, no, I didn't feel bad, and I'll I'll tell you why. Because, first of all, everybody wasn't underwater. When you go back to the reality of life, in America, 65% of Americans' net worth is in their house. So everybody wasn't underwater. About 10% of Americans were underwater. Second of all, I've always told people, you know, buy a home that you can afford, borrow 10 to 20% less than the bank will lend you, get a fixed-rate mortgage, and don't buy your dream house. Buy a home below your means and ideally pay your house off. You look at your house as a automated savings vehicle because the more you pay your home down, then the less risk you have. So my belief is you have to live somewhere, and as long as you're alive, uh, to me, renting is insane because renting always cost of rent always goes up. I mean, I've lived in New York since 2001, and rent, God, I mean, they've tripled since I've lived here. Literally, they've tripled. So if you rent an apartment that was $5,000 in 2001, that today is $15,000. Now, if you bought a home back in Tribeca where we lived in 2001, that $2 million loft today is worth $6 million, and all you've done is live there. So now that didn't really answer your question about what do people do who are behind. What you do is you get started. So, you know, I, you really just have to start, and starting can be as simple as saving $10 a day. That's not enough. But the thing I've, you know, I'm known for, and now people try to make fun of it, but it's the latte factor, which is people tell me all the time I can't afford to save, and they're still stopping at Starbucks and having a latte every day. And they're and drinking bottled water and eating out and joining a gym membership and paying $200 a month for cable. You know, your average American who's living paycheck to paycheck, and I'm not talking about minimum wage workers here, but your average American family is earning somewhere between fifty to $75,000 a year, and they've got two cars in the driveway and brand new televisions on the wall, and you go into their homes for these money makeovers, which I've done so many times, and they've got all kinds of stuff and no savings. So what do you do? You've got to grow your income, you've got to reduce your expenses, and you have to save money. It's, 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 it's a lot like... Uh, do, you know, do, they res- do they respond to your money makeover? So like you go in their house and, they, and you kind of list all these things that you see. Do they respond negatively or positively to that? Well, you know, but by the time you do a money makeover show, um, people are ready for change, right? Because they're in so much pain. I think, and so people will make the changes. I think people are always surprised that in less than an hour or two, you can show them ways to cut up to 20% of their expenses. I mean, I've never done a makeover where in an hour I can't figure out a way to cut 10% of a person's overhead. So let me ask you this. You know, a lot of people do the math, okay, I have $100 and every dollar saved is like a dollar earned. But the reality is if you have $100, you can only save 100 but you can earn a million. So not – or, you know, I'm exaggerating. But what what are some ways other than the latte factor where – um, okay, yes, I could save on the latte, but maybe I can also try to earn a lot more. And particularly now where income versus inflation has been going down now for the past, you know, X number of decades, what are some ways maybe people should think in a new way to to maybe make more income? Well, so there's actually, in, in smart couples, in smart women, there's a whole thing on how to grow your income by 10% or more. I think people underestimate the power that they have with their careers. So let's just start with people who actually have jobs, right? Because we have 52 million people who are freelancers in America, but let's start with people who have jobs. 
if you have a job today and you're great at what you do, you're extremely valuable. If you're not great at what you do, then you've got a problem, right? So if you're average or mediocre, you have a problem. But if you're great at what you do, if you're working your tail off, if you add enormous value, then you have negotiating power. And those people, by the way, who are, who are great at their jobs, who really add value, and are smart about negotiating, go in and constantly get raises. There's a 10, 15, 20% of the workforce that is getting a raise every single year, and it's above and beyond a 2 or 3% raise. So you have to drive your career. Today, it's not, we're not having 20, 30, 40-year careers at companies. We're moving on average of every five years. And partially, we're moving because as soon as we move, we can get somebody else to pay us more money. You have to be proactive in your career, period. Otherwise, you end up in the middle of the pack, and the middle of the pack is falling behind. You know, a lot of people think, oh, you're either an employee or an entrepreneur. I think there's kind of this middle area where you can be working at a job but be like an entrepreneur where you tie your success and your your ability to be uh, they can't do without you. Uh, you can tie that to a job. I think you should always be an entrepreneur. Now, it's easy for me to say that because I've basically always been one. But it's interesting because now I'm vice chairman of a major company and I quote-unquote have a job, but I don't think like an employee. I, I, I think like an entrepreneur. And I'm the guy that on this tour was was looking at the way we paid for our advertising and was going back and renegotiating our advertising rates and was watching our CPAs on an email campaign and going, you know what, those numbers didn't get to where we wanted to be. Personally calling back the company and saying, you guys have to run another email campaign in order for me to get these CPA numbers lower. And, and the employees around me were looking at me like, I can't believe the vice chairman's doing this. Well, the vice chairman's doing this because I'm an entrepreneur, and every dollar matters. And, you know, it's all about results. And so if you know, people go, well, how do I go from an employee mindset to an entrepreneur mindset? The entrepreneur is focused on results. The entrepreneur is always thinking about ROI, return on investment, and results. Because we don't live in a work-based world anymore. We live in a results-based world. And what happens with so many employees is they go to work and they think because they were there from 9 o'clock to 5 o'clock and nobody yelled at them that they're actually doing a good job. And that's called breathing. And so that's not what, that's not what succeeds in growing your income. And then if I go back to um, you know, entrepreneurs, a big part of how entrepreneurs succeed, again, is you add more value and you raise your rates. The fastest way to grow your income when you're an entrepreneur is to charge more. And as simple as increasing your rates by 5% every six months, if you're good at your job, if you're, whatever that could be, if they like you, they're not switching because you raised your rates 5%. But you know, but but you know, sometimes you. And I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm I'm a, a horrific interrupter. But I, I was just talking to a friend of mine who's an executive at a, a a well-known media company, and he's really good at his job. But he just got a new supervisor placed above him, who's you know, as is typical in these situations, who's like evil or whatever. He he's not even though they probably can't do without my friend, my friend's probably going to get fired or at least demoted or he, there's no way he can ask for a raise. What should he do? And he has been very entrepreneurial at his job. Okay, so your friend's a great example and we both live in the media world, right? So, the media world, the publishing world has absolutely fundamentally changed in the last 5 to 10 years. And it's radically changed in the last 24 months. Now, you could sit there and go, "Well, it's really unfair." And what am I going to do? Or you have to reinvent yourself, right? Because 
if you were in media, let's just say you worked at a publisher and you had a $350,000 a year publishing job, which there were a bunch of those jobs five years ago, those jobs are gone. Right. Okay, that $350,000 a year job in New York today is a 175 job, and you're lucky if you have it. And there's 10 of those 350 a year guys competing for the 175 a year job, which is now not even any fun because you're having to work harder to make half the amount of money. So what, what do people do? Well, they bitch about it or they reinvent. And what does reinvention look like? It, it looks like going back to school, getting new skills, starting over. That doesn't always mean you're going to make more money right away. And it doesn't mean that it's easy. But, you know, the good part about reinvention is it goes back to growth. And I guarantee you that your buddy who has that job has not grown in a while. And it probably feels like he's dying inside. I, and, I, I think that's really true. And I think people are afraid of, like, they say to themselves, oh, my gosh, I'm 47 years old. I can't start from scratch. But rather than kind of looking at the positive aspects of, hey, it might be exciting to learn something new and, and change even if it means, okay, I'm going to move outside of the city or I'm going to do this other thing and spend less money for a while or whatever. It's absolutely true. I think you can, anybody you've talked to who's gone through the brutal part of, like, for instance, your buddy, let's say he loses his job and he has to reinvent. And, it, you know, some people it doesn't turn out well, but more people than not, when they come through it, they will tell you that the reinvention part was some of the most exciting part of their life. Um, now, what's unique about our lives today is that there's so much time for reinvention because it used to be, you know, in 1900, this is pretty amazing, but James, what would you get? You, you probably know this. What do you think the life expectancy was in 1900? Uh, I would say about like 57 to 60. Okay. So you're, you're, you're not far off, but it was 47 years old. Oh my gosh. I was far off. That's a big difference. Okay. So 47 years old. Now, if you're, is, is that because of, is that because of infant mortality? I'm just pulling life expectancy numbers. Um, so I can't answer that question. That's good, but I, I should find that out. Probably it's probably impacted by that. But if you look at today, a person 65, if you're a couple today and you're 65 years old, one out of two of you has got a 50% likelihood of living to be 95 or older. And you, I'm sure, I know you do a lot of uh, re reading and research. And, you, and today, in five to ten years, we're going to consistently see people living to be 100. And so we have now 50 years of reinvention time. And I think that you probably have quite a few people like me who are listening to us um, in their 40s because, you, you know, I'm 48. I don't know how old you are. Um, 47. 47. So, you know, what happens a lot of times is that you attract people that are also your same age. So I think a lot of people listen to me in their 40s right now and early 50s and, you know, are dealing with this issue of reinvention. And right, right. So they're, they're sitting in their cubicle and they're thinking, I got to get out of here before I die. What should they do next? What's the next step? Give me the roadmap. Um, I think the next step is, you, you know, I'm a big journaler. I, I, I write in a journal every day. Well, also, I'll give you some major steps. First of all, I think everybody should take up meditation. You, you, we didn't talk, you talked about how do, you, how do you, you go back to being. Uh, meditation is an enormously helpful thing to help you get in touch with your soul and who do you want to be. You know, it's really funny. I was just at a conference um, on the other coast in California, and Tim Ferriss was on the stage, and somebody asked him, what's your biggest uh, force multiplier, which is kind of the latest 
phrase people used, you know, what, what, what enhances your performance? And he said, meditation. Ariana and I talked, I loved him. Ariana and I talked about this the other day, which is that uh, people are coming out of the closet around meditation. You know, you'd be amazed how many successful people meditate and, and actually credit meditation with their success. Uh, I personally do TM meditation, but it doesn't matter what meditation you do. I think it's having that uh, habit of daily meditation brings you back to who do you want to be. And when I come out of my meditation, I usually journal for five to ten minutes. And I think what people should do if you're sitting in a cubicle and you're miserable is, you know, take up some meditation. If you don't, if you don't believe you can meditate, anyone can meditate, by the way. It's not hard to learn how to do it. I didn't believe I could do it, and I started doing it. I learned how to do it two years ago, and it's changed my life. But I would say writing down in a journal every day what it is that you're unhappy about and what it is you believe could make you happier. And, and being honest, you know, so much of this is just telling yourself the truth. If I were to sit down with your buddy and say, you know, tell me the truth about your situation, both the good and the bad. Because from, from every bad thing that you could list for me, I could, I'm sure I could also pull out 10 things that are really good about his job. And there might even be some things about his boss that are good. But facing the truth of the situation, I think a lot of times we, we see the writing on the wall and we go into denial about it. And we, there's a lot of things that we can do today to, you know, to distract ourselves from the denial. But if your buddy believes that he's on the verge of being fired he's probably closer to being fired than he even realizes. I, I know you're, you're limited for time now, so I just want to be respectful, and I want to ask you just two more things. You know, I spend a lot of time looking at questions that are on Quora, which is this Q&A site on the Internet, and, and one of the top questions in the financial planning category right now is the question, what is the most effective yet efficient way to get rich? And how would you answer that? I would answer that with the single most important thing you can do to build wealth comes down to three words, and those three words are pay yourself first. Even if you're starting late? Even if you're starting late, because if you don't pay yourself first, you're never going to have any money. So paying yourself, because it doesn't, even if you go grow your income, if you grow your income and you spend everything you make, you're still broke. I know lots of people in New York who make a million dollars a year and they're broke. So paying yourself first on any income is absolutely where it starts. And it starts by deciding what percentage of your, of your income you're going to pay yourself first. I recommend at least an hour a day of your income. And then automatically saving that money. And, and the key to knowing you know, what's the secret is that there's no investment secret. It's called the miracle of compound interest. And whenever somebody's coming to you with their new thing dangled way that they're going to get you double-digit return, guaranteed, and not going to lose money, you need to run from those people. Right, because but even I, even compound interest, like now, there's there's no way to really predict whether it's going to be 1% or 5% or 3% or 10%. There's no way to predict. Well, and I don't really know that there was ever a way to predict. I, I think what you can look at is history does leave phenomenal clues. And if you go back to 1925, we both know that a balanced portfolio is averaged around 7 to 8% a year. And, you know, that would probably work for most people. You just, there, there is no magic cure for a lack of savings. So 
I'm all for growing your income. I'm all for being an entrepreneur. There's no question that you, I've seen people go from zero income to a million dollars starting their own business. It can absolutely be done. And to your point, if you're 50 years old, you know, it's no longer like your life expectancy is another 10 years. Like you could have another 50 good years to go, which is certainly enough time to compound. Well, that's exactly right, because a person at age 50 could easily have 20 to 25 years of opportunity to build income and to save income. And, you know, I'm also saying something else here, which is, and this, is this may not be a sexy thing to say, but, you know, the, the fastest way to make your financial life work is to reduce your overhead. <laughs> so I'm all, I'd rather see you grow your income and save more money, but the combination of reduce your overhead, cut your expenses, spend less, make more money and save more money, those three combined together make a person unstoppable. And the last thing, I guess, which is kind of the perfect thing to end with, is, is giving back. I've ended multiple books on mine and my speeches, which is, I think, one of the most important investment <laughs> secrets is that, that, rich, is that people give, is giving back. It's automatically tithing. And when you give back money, even before you're wealthy, I believe that giving back creates more wealth. It creates more wealth spiritually, emotionally, and studies show that people who have become wealthy, the one common link between high net worth investors is they gave back before they were wealthy. So, so David, I want to I wanna just kind of promote the tour that you're on and, and mention it. You're, you're, you're doing all these seminars on Smart Couples Finish Rich. And it's definitely something I recommend because as someone who's been divorced and remarried, I could tell you perhaps the most important financial decision in your life is who you decide to spend your life with. And so this is incredibly valuable, making this a critical part of your financial decision-making. So where can people find out more? Again, you said a URL earlier. What what, what was that URL again? Yeah, you bet. So my website is finishrich.com. Details are on my website at finishrich.com. They can also go to smartcouples.com live.com for registration, but go to finishrich.com for sure. Register for my newsletter because that way you'll get invited to a webinar if you can't make the live event. And I'm on Facebook and Twitter, uh, author David Bach on Twitter and Facebook um, is David Bach also on Facebook. So David, I really appreciate the time you spent and um, look, let's, let's get together and do this again and, uh, and continue the discussion at some point. Hey, James, I really appreciate it. It's been a blast. Like I said before, I'm a fan of yours, and I would love to take you to coffee or lunch because now I want to interview you and ask you questions. So um, thanks so much for having me on, and have yourself a great day. Keep up the great work, my friend. Okay, thanks. You too, David. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.